The information in this broadcast is for educational purposes only and is not provided as a professional service, medical advice, or is it intended or implied to be a substitute for diagnosis or treatment. You are encouraged to confirm any information obtained from this broadcast with other sources and review all information regarding any medical condition or treatment with your physician and other appropriate healthcare providers. Hi, I'm Pete Levine. Welcome to Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified. I'm a clinical instructor and clinical researcher. I've co-authored dozens of scientific journal articles about brain injury recovery, and I'm also the author of the book, Stronger After Stroke. I'm Deborah Battistella, occupational therapist, creator of the OT's Guide to Mirror Therapy, and an OT educator. I have a lot of experience working with survivors. Most of my clinical practice has been in a certified stroke center. Pete and I are especially interested in talking about what rehab, neuroscience, and clinical research all have to say about the brain and recovery. But don't worry, our job is to make this stuff simple. We're here to make it so that everyone, clinicians, clinical students, caregivers, and most importantly, the survivor, understands what it takes to leverage their great neuroplastic brain for recovery. brain stimulation program that we're doing at Hopkins is we're applying transcranial direct current stimulation to people who've had multiple types of brain injuries. Most common population that we see are strokes. The concept of this non-invasive brain stimulation is that it promotes neuroplasticity. And so we combine it with intensive therapy. So you come every day for three weeks and we're trying to do this really intensive therapy plus the non-invasive brain stimulation. So we're hoping it's like a double whammy of neuroplasticity and that we're really trying to get the brain to get excited, excite those cortical tissues and get them to start reorganizing and healing themselves. We have two great Noggins and Neurons episodes, this episode and next, about cerebellar ataxia. In particular, we're going to focus on ataxia caused by brain injury and stroke to the cerebellum. The pathophysiology of ataxia is many and varied. There are inherited forms. There are forms that you can get from toxins. You can get it from vitamin D deficiency. You can get it from COVID, usually from severe cases of COVID. And there's a bunch of other vectors for ataxia. And some forms of ataxia are idiopathic. It just shows up and nobody knows why. Ataxia usually involves the cerebellum, but not always. But again, in these episodes, we're gonna focus on damage to the cerebellum caused by stroke and other forms of acquired brain injury. Cerebellum is Latin for little brain, and it's at the back of your head at the bottom of the skull. It's a fascinating part of the brain. It's a part of the brain that is very dense in neurons, and it essentially coordinates coordination. If the cerebellum has problems, coordination has problems. And to help us discuss cerebellar ataxia, we have three stellar guests. First, Stephen Heim. He's a stroke survivor. His stroke hit the cerebellum and he has cerebellar ataxia. And this is how my interest in this subject started. We met on our Noggins and Neurons Facebook page and we went back and forth with some emails and I had a Zoom meeting with him. And I realized that the questions that he had about his pathology were way over my head. Not only does Stephen have cerebellar ataxia, 
Before his stroke forced him into retirement, he was an intensive care unit nurse, so he knew quite a bit about medicine to begin with. And I don't think that retirement is going to stick because he's already on to his next academic adventure and a new chapter in his career. So I hunted around to try to find someone who could help Stephen. And at this point, me as well, because I started to get really interested in the subject. So I found the perfect people to ask about cerebellar ataxia and how to mitigate it. Two physical therapists who work at the Johns Hopkins Ataxia Center in Baltimore, Maryland. The Hopkins Ataxia Center is part of the Johns Hopkins Hospital, and it's the part that's dedicated to this one sequelae, ataxia. And they've assembled an incredible team of professionals to help patients deal with ataxia. I managed to convince two physical therapists there, Meredith Drake, and Jennifer Miller to help navigate this rich, interesting, and complex pathology. This is going to be a good one. And if you make a mistake and it's funny, we're keeping it. <laughs> so that I got to just warn you about that. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and get started. So Deb and I would like to welcome Meredith Drake and Jennifer Miller, both physical therapists and both from Johns Hopkins Hospital. Welcome Meredith and Jennifer. Thank you. I do think that Jen pronounces her last name Millar. Millar. No, it's oh. Miller. Oh, really? So I've been saying it wrong for, what? how long have we been working together? Six years? See, now this is funny. <laughs> this is key. I, I thought I screwed up. You fat in the podcast. <laughs> Jen, literally the entire department says Malar. You haven't corrected any of us? I, I it's, it's, how do you say the, how do you say the word P-I-L-L-A-R? That's, that's a good point. That's a good, I, I that's I my grandfather's it. argument of why we <laughs> say it the way we do. Okay. I will start getting the word. It's, it's Miller. But spelled with an A. Yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. Uh, okay. Yeah. Well, <laughs> this is going just, just the same way it always goes. We like it. We're also going to have Stephen Heim that's going to come in a little bit later, and he's really interesting because he's going to add a lot of ballast to this conversation because he's a stroke survivor, he's had a cerebellar stroke, and prior to the stroke was an intensive care unit nurse. So that's going to be great. But look, I don't even know anything about the cerebellum, let alone cerebellar ataxia or any other kind of ataxia. So Jennifer... Meredith, where do you think we should start with this? Well, the cerebellum is where movement coordination and motor learning mostly occurs. It's not where motor function originates. The role of the cerebellum is to help us predict and smooth out our movements in response to sensory stimuli. To have good balance and coordination, your body relies on sensory input from your visual system, vestibular system, and your somatosensory system. And feedback from these systems integrate with each other in the cerebellum and other brainstem structures to produce a motor output. So we have good ocular motor function because of integration of sensory input through the cerebellum to allow for a stable gaze with head and body turns or for your eyes to look at a target and not over undershoot. 
or for you to have good balance required for walking or coordination for you to allow to move at multiple joints smoothly and precisely. Um, But if a certain part of the cerebellum isn't working 100%, you might have various symptoms like blurry or bouncy vision. And the medical word for that is oscillopsia, either with your head still or with your head or body moving or imbalance or unsteadiness or impaired ability to reach to a target accurately. One may over undershoot. The key role of the cerebellum is it taking in that sensory feedback and allowing your body to, again, predict the appropriate response according to the feedback that's coming in. It's a a complicated brain structure with billions of cells, and we're still figuring out and unveiling some roles that we wouldn't have expected, including some non-motor functions, wakefulness, arousal, things like that. It's one of those structures like your inner ear. You don't realize how important it is until it's not working right. So a lot of the patients that we happen to see in our clinic are people with neurodegenerative conditions that are affected are affecting um, cerebellar function, but we do see some with stroke as well. So as Meredith has commented before, a lot of the literature that we go by for rehab when it comes with to rehabbing from a cerebellar stroke, we end up referring to literature that's in the degenerative ataxia conditions. I learned something about the cerebellum today that just blew my mind. There are 3.6 times more neurons in the cerebellum, which is what they call it. They call it the little brain, right? It sits at the back of your head, occipital, under the occipital bone or right in the occipital bone compared to the cerebrum. If you think about the brain, typically people would think about the cerebrum. It's the big part of the brain, shaped like a helmet, but 3.6 times more neurons. There's 86 billion neurons in the entire brain. And I tried really hard to do the math right. And I'm not good at math, but I think I got close to it. 64 billion of the 86 billion neurons are in the cerebellum. That's crazy. Underappreciated, I'd say. I think the fascinating thing about the cerebellum is that it doesn't produce you know, strength or sensation or anything like that. You can have all those systems fully intact, but because the cerebellum is kind of the processing point of our brain of all of that sensory input, when that's impaired, it completely affects your mobility. It's really debilitating whenever that small region of the brain is impaired. Yeah. So it's almost like the thalamus. It's a processing center for everything that has to do with movement. Mm -hmm. I just made that up. Is that true? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Swallowing, speaking, limb coordination, eye movements. It all all goes through the cerebellum uh, to, to generate smooth motor function. But what we're revealing, like you said, there's so many billions of cells. We're now even unveiling some non-motor functions we didn't even know we're part of the cerebellum. Did so I read something about their emotions? Some some kinds of emotions are involved with the cerebellum or vice versa? Yeah, the vestigial nucleus is just, there's some amazing basic scientists at Hopkins here who spent a lot of time staining and mapping out different outputs of this vestigial nucleus, which is a very, very small, small nucleus in the cerebellum. And they found that those some of the neurons going through there have a role in arousal, attention, working memory, wakefulness, spatial orientation. So things we never would have thought had, you know, that you wouldn't, we wouldn't have, who would have guessed that those non-motor functions are all um, relying on the cerebellum 
some of our patients are dealing with extreme amounts of fatigue. And we've always thought, oh, maybe it's just because it takes so much energy to walk when you're not perfectly coordinated. And now we're learning that some of those types of non-motor symptoms can be coming from actual parts of the cerebellum that aren't working properly. The other thing I found really interesting is that, you know, the right side of the brain controls the left side of the body and the left side of the brain controls the right side of the body. But with the cerebellum, the left side of the cerebellum works with the right side of the cerebrum to control the muscles on the left side of the body. So it's an ipsilateral control from the cerebellum and of course, vice versa, if you flip all the left and right. So that's crazy. Yeah. I think this is where treating cerebellar issues in therapy is really changing gears. Um, A lot of therapists are a little intimidated by it because it is rare. First off, I was reading a stat that 2% of all strokes are cerebellar. So it's really rare to even find to see a cerebellar stroke, I think, in your career. And I think we, Jen and I take that for granted because we work at Hopkins and we see these rare conditions. Um, But also the treatment approach is really different when it's a cerebellar stroke or injury um, compared to whenever it's the rest of the cerebral cortex that's been damaged. What do you think? Thanks for that. And I don't want to tangent you guys into where you don't want to go right now, but what would be different to a physical therapist, occupational therapist, or student or whatever? What would be the thing that would just hit you right in the head that would tell you this is different in terms of treating patients? Well, whenever you have damage to the cerebellum, the cerebellum's big roles, especially in terms of what our considerations as therapists whenever we're treating, is that it does motor learning and motor planning, right? So whenever you have damage to the part of your brain that does motor learning and motor planning, you can't really motor learn or motor plan that well, which means you can't use feedback from errors to correct your mobility. A lot of what we do in stroke rehab is error-based learning. You know, we kind of let people feel things out and try to figure out their their bodies and this new functional status they have. Um, but you really can't error learn whenever you have a cerebellar injury. Hey guys, I just wanted to step in here real quick to tell you about a continuing education course on spasticity that I'm doing. It's live virtually November 17th from 8 p.m. to 10 p.m. And that's Eastern time zone in the U.S. You can sign up for it by finding your way over to the fine folks at Motivation CEU, motivationceu.com. There's no spaces in there. Once you get on the website, find the search window and just type Levine, L-E-V-I-N-E. If you search Levine, four courses will come up. One is on spasticity, and that's the one November 17th from 8 to 10 p.m. Then there's a three-part series that I'm doing on stroke recovery, and it'll have the dates for those as well. All these courses are done live initially, but if you can't make it, you can sign up for any of these courses and watch them whenever you want. The one on spasticity in November, I'll be talking about the same kinds of stuff that I talked about on the spasticity episode on this podcast, but there's going to be images and videos, and it's going to be geared a little bit more towards clinicians, so there'll be a little bit more complex a little bit more depth, and a little bit more nomenclature. There'll also be some hands-on stuff, as much as you can do hands-on stuff virtually. And if you get to the live presentations, there'll be plenty of time to ask questions. But hey, it's going to be fun, and I hope to see you there, motivationceu.com. Thanks.
The type of motor learning that mostly is controlled by the cerebellum is adaptation or, you know, naturally when your cerebellum is working as it should, you can learn by error-based learning. But then when you have an impairment, and what we mean by that is like if you were to get a new computer and you have to relearn how to use the mouse and know how to just how to move the cursor to where you want it to go, or you're using someone else's computer, it takes some learning. And then if you're switching back and forth, you kind of have been able, based on trial and error, to kind of adapt to those two different scenarios. But then what we're seeing with the cerebellar injury is that they don't learn so much like through that method, through trial and error. But some studies have shown that people with cerebellar conditions can learn with a different way. And that's called reinforcement learning. So it's kind of like learning a new skill you've never tried before and you don't know anything about. For example, like a first time a child's learning how to swing on a swing, they really don't know how to coordinate their movement of their legs or their trunk or their arms until they try it out. And then when something works or doesn't work, that reinforces the right movements. And it's necessary to kind of explore the different types of movements and scale the movement to get it right. And this is the type of learning that in rehab we'd like to maximize when we're teaching people with ataxia how to learn a new skill. And more research is, is needed to figure out, is somebody more of a learner through error-based or reinforcement feedback kind of more learning style? And, and then that can help us to better target treatments too. When we think about motor learning, I think about the motor and sensory cortex and some other ancillary areas. Would you describe them as subservient to this impact that the cerebellum has on movement? If the cerebellum is broken, those other areas in the cerebrum, the motor and sensory cortex, won't respond to new learning? Uh, so, in yeah, certain parts of the cerebellum are damaged where major motor learning occurs. Yeah, then it's, it's hard to, it's hard to rehab from that. But that's where we expect the cortex to almost take over to sometimes help with generating the proper movement. And we'll, we could talk, Meredith and I, um, you know, in the clinic, know that when we have people doing dual task type activities as part of standardized tests, they just don't perform as well as when they're focusing 100% on their walking or whatever the task in front of them. Because they rely on their cortex so much to take over for the function of the cerebellum kind of thing. The cerebellum is fast, right? Like it's predicting movements and helping us make corrections along the way. So you don't need that technically. You can, like Jen said, use the cortex. You can use your cognitive faculties and your intact motor cortex and sensory cortex, all that, right? You can, you can kind of use other parts of your brain to accomplish a task, but it's slower and it takes a lot more effort and concentration. So that's, I think that's a really big difference whenever you're factoring in a cerebellar lesion versus like a cortex lesion. And the other unique thing about the cerebellum is it, it, it has a way of like planning an appropriate movement before like like kind of predicting the sensory input that'll be coming in and the appropriate movement that it should be doing before it even happens. So it's kind of, <laughs> it's very, it's got a unique role in that way. And that way that can help people deal with unexpected things coming their way, whether it's, uh, you know, perturbations or whatever. So it's hard to kind of, yeah, it's hard for other brain functions to take over for that unique role because it's really only the cerebellum that has this pre-planning kind of role. 
Um, you also asked, when it comes to dealing with movement disorders as therapists, you know, we can think of two categories of major movement disorders we work with. A lot of therapists see a lot of Parkinson's patients more so than cerebellar ataxia patients. And it's important for a therapist to distinguish between the two types of movement disorder when it comes to treatment plans. When you think of Parkinson's disease, that's a totally different movement disorder than ataxia. And the analogy to someone living with Parkinson's disease is like you can think of a car that has trouble starting and maintaining or controlling speed versus ataxia. The car has no problem starting, but it just can't drive in a straight line or over or under turns. Um, so the, for the Parkinson's patients that have trouble getting started or keeping moving in therapy, we're doing a lot of high amplitude, big moves. Movements. We're relying on, you know, external cueing to kind of help jumpstart the brain to initiate movement because their, their internal go signal has been dimmed versus ataxia. We're all about strategizing slow movements, you know, soft movements. Meredith says slow and soft. She likes to say that focusing on quality of movement, not speed. And just, again, giving the brain the opportunity to kind of figure it out. Both conditions require a lot of balance training, but for kind of different reasons. But we see a lot of people that have kind of maybe, yeah, are just trying to merge Parkinson's treatment principles for the ataxia patients, but it's really, the rehab is completely opposite. It's very different. <laughs> yeah, you gave a, a list of hints and suggestions for patients with cerebellar ataxia, and one of them was move slowly, and, yeah. and that's why. You know, a lot of times we like to tell our patients, you know, give yourself a chance to kind of match where you think you are in space and where you actually are. Sometimes when you, if you move slowly, you have like your reference of where you started your movement and where you ended up is much closer versus if you move fast, where you started and ended up is so much farther away. So it's kind of hard for your brain to keep track of where you are in space a little bit. So yeah, slowing down a movement allows your brain to have a better sense of um, your where your limb is in space relative to where you started. And other strategies is just, as Meredith mentioned before, over avoiding multitasking, focus on the tasks that you're attempting is really key because cognition can really help with motor function and ataxia. And then another simple task for people with ataxia is just even breaking down movements such as like placing your elbow on the table to stabilize at one joint to minimize the complexity of the of moving from multiple joints because with ataxia it's hard to coordinate from multiple joints versus just from one. Those are some simple tricks and I love to just tell patients just yeah, take an extra moment to pause and match where you think your body is and where it actually is before you're making a move. It's a, it take, it's a test of people's frustration tolerance <laughs> to give themselves permission to do things with what we call modified independence and just adjusting to strategies that will work for them to prevent falls and just allow them to get from point A to point B safely. You talked about stabilizing an arm on a table to make less joints involved. Boy, but with ambulation, there's so many joints involved. They got to work very coordinatedly. And then there's the risk of falling. And it also uses the upper extremities. Is that typically the hardest thing to learn or relearn or? Yeah. And we'll, we'll see people when they're walking, they, they'll, they'll lock their knees. They'll try to walk more robotically because that's their way of compensating for kind of making 
walking easier. Um, it's um, so, yeah, when we're in therapy, we do try to do, you know, so working on motor coordination is a big part of therapy. And, you know, a lot of people will tell us they feel weak in their legs because they just don't have the coordination, but actually their strength is usually off the charts, strong, you know, it's really good usually, but they just don't, you know, it's more of a motor coordination thing. So in therapy, we really work on a lot of balanced motor coordination, dynamic challenges, weight shifting, more so than strength training. Strength training is nice to be able to have, you know, good core strengths. You can stand longer and work on, you know, upright tasks longer, but strength really is not, not the issue in ataxia. We don't see strength deficit. So our kids, uh, you can donate to Nuggets and Neurons. There's a QR code on the Podbean website. You can just scan it. And also there's a Venmo that you can do it. It's at Neurons is our address or whatever you call it. And, and thank you to all of you who have been donating. We yes, appreciate it. It's very nice. And remember, 20% goes to the Brain Injury Association of America. Brain Injury Association of America. <laughs> um, 20% of it goes to that if you if you donate a little bit and it have to be a lot be a little bit in some ways it's like just showing in a, a little bit of appreciation if you're getting something out of it yeah and, and don't forget to join the facebook group that'll be helpful too mm-hmm. and yeah so yeah good yeah it's good stuff So a moment ago, you mentioned the word perturbations. That's kind of a big word. And I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit relative to what you're talking about now with what you do in therapy. So yeah, perturbation means having to maintain your balance. Like the simplest example is somebody bumping into you. Like, how are you going to stay upright and not fall? You know, sometimes in therapy, we literally give people external stimuli, so to speak, (laughs) try to, you know, tap them on their shoulder or their trunk and force them to try to figure out how to maintain being upright. Or it could even be from like, walking on a dock, like a floating dock and or on a sailboat and your feet are moving underneath you. And that requires a whole other set of strategies to maintain balance. But they're all situations you could encounter in real life that you kind of have to figure out how to deal with. So we try to simulate real life circumstances in therapy in that way. Sometimes it's hard to train, you know, there are fancy treadmills that can start and stop where people have to learn how to, again, react to, you know, the surface underneath them changing. I don't know if that's, those are just some examples. Those I think are, are very good examples. And I think that that can make it difficult for somebody to want to go out of the house. Yeah, it's dealing with wind and people and all, all kinds of sensory stimuli is uh, it's it's definitely a different than just being in the comfort of your own home. And that's the main part of what we try to do in therapy is to prepare people for those environments. Stephen is here. We'd like to welcome Stephen Heim to this whole conversation. He's a stroke survivor. He had a cerebellar stroke. He has cerebellar ataxia. And prior to the stroke was an intensive care unit nurse. 
And I think he has so much knowledge, as Deb refers to it as the lived experience, as well as the medical background. And I'm really interested in learning what he has to say. Hey, Stephen, you made it. Well, I'm on my phone currently. I'm trying one more laptop. Oh, so we're going to stay with the phone for a while and then maybe shoot over to a laptop? Yeah. Okay. Nice to meet you, Stephen. Nice to meet you too, Deb. Hey, Stephen, we got two awesome, awesome experts on cerebellar ataxia. And I want to know out of all the questions that you have, what's the biggest question that comes up with you with regard to your recovery? Um, You know, I think like the biggest question is I have a real problem with dysmetria. I think, will my deficits get better? What can I do to make my deficits better? I heard a brief thing about uh, Jennifer saying that you can brace your arm on the table. I didn't even know about that until probably a few months ago. Dysmetria is inability to accurately hit a target, whether it's your nose or your foot to the ground. Yeah, like we discussed earlier, since the cerebellum does prediction of movement, right? Like it it just knows. The cerebellum is how we know whenever we're reaching for a water bottle off of a desk that you need to extend your elbow just this amount. You need to open your hand just that amount. You need to travel at the speed as you do it. That's all the cerebellum that does that. So without that, what you have sometimes is either an undershooting where you kind of go a little shy of it. And then typically there's an overcorrection. Then they knock the water bottle right off the desk. Or some people tend to whiff it. They go way too far and then they end up undercorrecting. And so that's where you start getting this dysmetria, which is kind of not quite getting to target, sometimes overshooting, sometimes undershooting. You mentioned dysmetria first as the big question you had at the top of the list. I wonder why it's dysmetria. How does it affect your life? I think it like when I'm trying problem stopping or hitting things, can't judge where they are or when to stop. I also have trouble overreaching or underreaching things, especially with my right hand. I don't use my right hand for that reason. Um, it's not really a bad effect. It's just annoying. Everything you do, you have to kind of anticipate the reach or the location of the object. And even though I anticipate it, um, I go beyond it or go short of it. So it affects my everyday life. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of... Uh, that, that's, sound. that's cool sounding. <laughs> Get out of that. Okay. Okay. I think we're fixed now. <laughs> yeah, I was just saying that's that's a common thing that we hear, I think, from our patients who have ataxia is that the dysmetria is one of the most difficult things to deal with because it, like the example I gave earlier, just trying to get a water bottle off of a table is a challenge because yes. you, you can't really figure out how fast or slow or how far, you know, your, your brain is having so much difficulty coordinating that movement. Now I found if I go slower, it doesn't happen as much Or if I brace my hand. But like if I'm driving down the road, I cannot get my drink out of the couples or and take a drink. I have to wait until I'm stopped or not driving. And, you know, I know that's little and minuscule. You know, I was right-handed. That was my dominant hand. And so I'm working on making my left hand my dominant. But it's a right-handed world out there. 
And I'm really finding that out. Absolutely. My brother is left-handed and I hear about it all the time. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I I think a common thing that Jen and I were just talking about that a lot of therapists do with patients who have ataxia to try to help with that is they'll put ankle weights on limbs because force is mass times acceleration, right? You know, you're trying to increase the weight on the limbs. So perhaps you're producing a little bit less acceleration. Um, so it's, it's a good intention, but it's not really real world practice of you move your limbs. And one of the things we were discussing before you got on the call was this kind of motor learning is really hard after you've had damage done to the motor learning part of your brain. So you can't really transfer these tasks very easily, right? So you're learning how to pick up a cup with, you know, maybe somehow there's a weight to it, like a weighted koozie, or you've got a weight on your arm, but then whenever that weight is removed, you won't be able to transfer that skill to your real, you know, your real self, your unweighted arm. And so repetition is really key and real world practice, like not relying on some of those compensations like weights. Um, Like Jen said earlier, the learning does happen. It just happens slower. It takes a lot more time and it takes a lot more repetition than it would the average learner whenever you have damage to the motor learning part of your brain. So repetition does help? Like crazy repetition. It's It gets very, I mean, in studies, in stroke, the things that they're doing repetition-wise is not even achievable in the clinic. It's one of our primary complaints as therapists is how am I going to get a patient to do something 10,000 times? That's not going to happen in the clinic. You know, but that's that's where they're actually seeing improvements. Is where there's this extremely high level of practice and repetition. Um, and in cerebellar issues, it's the same task because trying to do variability is going to break down actually what you're trying to learn because that adaptability is impaired because of the cerebellum being impaired. So it's kind of boring and kind of a lot of the same thing over and over and over and over. Yeah. I think I've told someone, they asked me how my recovery is going. And I said, it's going at the speed of continental drift slow. Yes, that's that's the frustrating thing I think about trying to recover, especially from a cerebellar injury is it's because you have so many things right, right? Like you still have your strength, you have sensation, yes. you have all these systems that are intact and you just can't use them. So it's just so frustrating. That is like my voice sounding hoarse now. Um, there are so many muscles and air that you have to coordinate to produce speech and I just can't coordinate them all the same. My vocal cords move at different speeds. And so that's why I sound like I do. I thought that was just your uh, Texas accent. Well, part of it is my Texas accent, but um, part of it is um, like the taxic dysarthria. So yeah, I used to, I'm sorry. Motor control is every part of your body. I know. Vocal cords, eyes, all of the above. But with repetition, how much can you recover? Or, you know, I did, I don't have like a hereditary ataxia or degenerative ataxia. My ataxia is from a cerebellar stroke. So I think what benefits me is I have an area of damage, but I can get better. Yes. This is where degenerative ataxias and cerebellar injuries from like a stroke or a brain tumor or something like that are very different. Their, their presentation is very different, I think, and they're challenging in different ways. Like you said, 
said, a degenerative ataxia has a worse prognosis. They're probably, they might see a little bit of improvement when they'd start therapy, but ultimately if it's a degenerative disease, they are going to keep getting worse. If it's a stroke, then it's kind of a one and done. And we're hoping that with therapy and, um, you know, the concept of neuroplasticity that it can eventually kind of heal over time. It also, I think personally, it's more challenging to have a sudden injury like a stroke because whenever you have a degenerative type ataxia, you're kind of learning along the way how to modify your movements and stay mobile where, and they kind of, they develop these very typical, I feel like compensations. They move slow, like Jen said earlier, wide base of support. They kind of learn these compensations over time. Whereas whenever you have a stroke, it's just, it hits you. And it's so hard to try to learn those compensations. You're just used to walking like normal and now you can't. Um, even though you have your strength, you have your sensation, you can't control it all of a sudden. And so you have to try to learn these compensations that are very not natural. Yeah, my um, I'm very stiff-legged when I walk and I really have trouble with balance but I have improved. I used to fall kind of like a tree. Now I can catch myself with both feet, like I'll step back or I haven't fallen in two years, but I use a wheelchair because it is easier and faster and not so exhausting. But I am using, I've read tried to graduate to using a cane just around the house, but I'm yeah. still using a wheelchair when I go out. I think that's a great compromise. I think that's a wonderful thing to do because you're prioritizing your quality of life, your ability to get out and around by using a wheelchair, but you're still working on it. You're not giving up on being able to return to walking. So I think that's a really great yeah. thing. Well, Stephen has a, a really cool ambition. And uh, so his dad in about a year, I think is going yes. to uh to Greece and he wants to go with his dad and so he thinks maybe it, you were thinking maybe with a rolling walker yeah uh, yeah they said i would need to use a rolling walker like the ones with seats yeah so yeah. that gets a little tricky because that's learning a new task and again motor learning is impaired whenever you've had damage to the cerebellum also a lot of times in i've noticed i don't know if jen has too but sometimes trying to add an assistive device is a dual task you're trying to focus on your walking as well as the device and it almost makes your walking harder i would agree with that i i do better when I don't have anything than when I do have something. But yeah. I like that little bit of ability um, or extra balance. Like when I lose my balance, I have the cane or the um, rollator. But, you know, I my steps are worse. It's, it is something extra that you have to think about, like walking and talking. I cannot talk when I walk. If I do... Yeah. It's horrible. Yeah. And we normally do encourage people to just single task. Don't try to walk and talk. You know, uh, just if, okay. you, if you're with someone, just say, sorry, I can't do it. If you want to talk, we got to stop. Yeah. If you want to walk, we can't talk. I would that say stop. Attention? Yeah. Stop and sit down. Yeah. <laughs> I think that trying to take a walker to Greece is a great goal, but I think that you should start practicing because again, that repetition yeah. is going to be key. It's getting lots and lots of practice with it. There are a few things that we 
sometimes try for people who have ataxia to try to make that a little bit easier. Um, one of those things is to add some what we call proximal support. So adding some support that's closer into your body. So getting a walker that has forearm attachments. So you're kind of weight bearing through your elbows instead of through your hands. So that's a little bit less for your cerebellum to try to coordinate because it's again, taking some joints out of the picture whenever you do it that way. There's also some rollators. Um, Jen, do you remember what the rollator is that Allie recommends for people with ataxia? It, it, it like buckles in at the hips. Um, so it provides stability at the hip. And I just can't remember what it is. Like- the life glider. The life glider. I have one of those. How does it work for you? Uh, it worked horrible. I can't, it, the first time, and so I put it away. I didn't even use it for like a year. And then I recently got it back out and it did work better, but I feel like it's, my feet always want to hit it. Oh, interesting. Cause the, the idea of the life glider is that the frame is in the back. And so yes. your legs are, there's theoretically your legs are not supposed to be, you know, the, the frame of the walker should allow you to freely move your legs and not worry about them hitting the walker. Um, and it has a little bicycle seat also, and then a seat yes. belt. So people like it so they can be in the kitchen and prepare a meal and, um, you know, not worry about falling backwards and kind of can do more multitask things in a, in a safe way. So, but it also is, it's, you know, it has four wheels. So it does, it, it's kind of, for some people can, people can feel like they're all over the place a little bit. Um, so there's other walkers like the U-Step, which was originally di- designed for people with Parkinson's, which is a little more heavy, um, that has a frame in the front versus the back. Um, so there's a lot of different devices out there. And um, so it's good to almost try them out and figure out which one works for you. But I'm glad you, oh. I'm glad you dug yours out, though, to try it again. I did. <laughs> I, I'm really, I struggle with um, backing up and turning. Yeah, back, falling backwards is a major issue with people with cerebellar ataxia. Um, so that's, again, um, when, it, when you're in the kitchen, give yourself permission to let someone else take, in, take something hot out of the oven. Don't feel like you have to do yeah. yourself. I mean, and it's good that you know that about yourself. So it sounds, you know, I'm sure you, the fact that you haven't fallen as much recently is a sign that you've kind of figured out the strategies you need to put into play um, every day to yeah. get around with what we call modified independence. You can get the things done um, um, in a safe way. So that's good. <laughs> a lot of trial and error. Um, so, yes. <laughs> Um, but yeah, as you said, moving slowly is just um, whether it's reaching for your for something or when you're walking, just it allows your body to have a, a shorter reference point of where you started and where you're where you ended up. How it helps you to be better in touch with where you are in space. Jennifer and and Meredith, can you pitch Stephen on the Johns Hopkins Ataxia Center? What can you say glowingly about where you work and tell them about all the technologies and everything? 
Sure. The Taxia Center was established about 10 years ago, and it was through a family foundation that helped support a multidisciplinary clinic where patients can come and receive care from a neurologist as well as a whole host of allied team members, um, genetic counseling, PT, OT, speech. So it's for people that are having symptoms of ataxia and don't know why, it's a great place to come to to try to figure out what's going on. And then Meredith is in a unique position where she's working with the with the brain stimulation program. I'll let her talk about that a little bit. <laughs> the brain stimulation program that we're doing is we're at Hawkins is we're applying transcranial direct current stimulation to people who've had multiple types of brain injuries. Most common population that we see are strokes. Um, the concept of these this non-invasive brain stimulation is that it promotes neuroplasticity. Um, and so we combine it with intensive therapy. So you come every day for three weeks and we're trying to do this really intensive therapy plus the non-invasive brain stimulation. So we're hoping it's like a double whammy of neuroplasticity and that we're really trying to get the brain to get excited, excite those cortical tissues and get them to start reorganizing and healing themselves. Um, so it's there's a lot of exciting things in healthcare right now that's there and technologies that are trying to figure out ways to speed up neuro recovery after a neurologic injury. Because as you've said, Stephen, it's frustrating how long it takes. I always tell people the brain stimulation, it doesn't work miracles, but it's like it hits the fast forward button a few months. We've been really surprised by the good outcomes that we're getting, but it's not like it's going to cure you, like the injury never happened, but we are seeing some really good effects of surprisingly quick improvements for just three weeks of intervention. And there's, like I said, there's lots of lots of research going on. Um, cerebellar injuries are getting more attention. You know, we've got a lot of researchers like Jen right here and a few other researchers across the street at Kennedy Krieger that are doing some really interesting stuff that are helping us kind of unravel the mystery that is the cerebellum because we really don't know a lot about it. And it's it's we're learning more and more about how big of a role it plays, not just in mobility, but in also our wakefulness and all sorts of things. When it comes to neuro rehab, it's, um, you know, not like a cardiovascular condition, like a heart problem or cancer. It's, it's not something we can treat through medication. So we really, you know, for recovery, it's all about a lot of it is rehabilitation and practicing things a million times, as Meredith said. And it's um, with cerebellar conditions, it takes forever for a new task to stick. And then once it has stick, you almost feel like when you try that task the next day, you don't quite have it mastered like you did the day before, which can be very frustrating, but it's, but it's really cool to see the motor learning literature showing that people can learn, um, with cerebellar, um, injury, um, and again, we're in the future going to be better about targeting treatments when we can better understand what is your motor learning preference? Do you learn better through adaptation versus reinforcement feedback, um, figuring it out versus trial and error? Those are the two different types of motor learning that we that a lot of the research is focused on. So lots to still be figured out, but it's really hopeful that the evidence that is there um, is, is pretty convincing that 
practice and repetition um, can really help. And a ton of balance training can really impact quality of walking, making your steps less variable and your basis support more narrow. And it's, it's tough to rely on your own self to keep up with some of those <laughs> exercises. So that's where we as therapists totally encourage you to tap into alternative therapies. Tai Chi is a great example where you're working on your balance, weight shifting. You need to, you're challenging those motor control systems, but Tai Chi, the main principle is all about simplifying movements and using the fewest muscles possible. And that's what we try to encourage people with ataxia to kind of adopt those strategies. Um, people, when you're when you're man- living with ataxia symptoms, you tend to want to contract all your muscles to stabilize. And figuring out a way to just kind of, you know, s- simplify your movements um, can be done through something like Tai Chi or yoga. Or swimming is another alternative exercise um, where you can do things in a pool you wouldn't necessarily feel comfortable doing on land and you won't have the risk of a severe fall. Um, can work on your, you know, and it can even help you with your endurance. Um, there was a study that was published um, by this group in Germany um, who did some great, uh, a, a really nice historical study on the benefits of balance training on improving quality of walking in adults. Um, but then they repeated the study in kids using Xbox Connect, and they found similar results um, where people's quality of walking improved by doing games that are focusing on weight shifting and dynamic coordination. So the games in, were like table tennis and another one called 20,000 Leaks and of a light race. Um, They don't make Xbox Connect anymore, but the concept could be certainly translated to other type video games. Of course, you'd want to make sure you're safe and have a family member next to you um, if needed. But those types of alternative therapies can help you stay in the game as far as not giving up on trying to challenge yourself and keep trying to practice these keep that motor learning going because there's really we can't really say that there's any point where your body will not learn it as long as it's challenged and you're firing up those neurons there's always potential to keep improving even though it takes forever (laughs) yeah and that's the nice thing about those alternative therapies that she mentioned is repetition is key and so doing these things outside of therapy is going to be getting you more repetition like therapy alone is not going to be enough. You've got to get more repetition somehow outside of therapy. So how would one get repetitions to improve walking and speed and balance? A great question. Um, you know, in a taxi, it's hard for us to prescribe walking tests for people when people are such risk for falling. So it's kind of encouraging to see the literature. A lot of studies have done just plain balance training, but of course, they're really the measures that are most important to people are the walking measures. And it was kind of neat to see in a couple studies, um, one from this group from Germany, Win- Winifred Ilg and her colleagues in 2009 um, had people exercising in the clinic uh, three days a week for an hour plus an hour per day at home. Uh, So like 10 hours per week, (laughs) they're really trying to prove a point that um, balance training can help walking. And they did prove that it can help. Um, And then another group at Kennedy Krieger um, did a similar study uh, where they, people did home um, balance training um, at least 20 minutes, three to five times per week 
But what was unique by that study is they asked people to rate how hard they were working, how intense was the exercise. And they found that those who actually challenged themselves more, had, but even exercised less frequently, did better than those who exercised every day, but really didn't challenge themselves. The training was all balanced training, but the measures they all were looking at were all walking. And they had clinically significant improvements in, in quality of walking just by working on balance alone. And that can be standard tasks. They had some people doing things and sitting too. In therapy, we have people in quadruped positions um, or lying on a foam roller on the, on your back. So you're low to the ground. So if you are trying to figure out how to balance on it and you fall off, you really, you're right there on the ground anyway. So, um, but again, just challenging those neurons, firing them up and just figuring out what movements work and what don't. <laughs> and then eventually your body learns the right way that works for you to to, um, to stay upright and walk with um, better quality. <laughs> Jennifer has a really good uh, video online that's got like uh, 2.5 million hits. No, actually, maybe a little bit less than that. Um, exercises. Uh, some of them seem sort of based in Tai Chi, which she was talking about. Is that not true, Jennifer? Is there any Tai Chi-ish? No, not at all. Some of the exercises in the video, I have to give a shout out to a group from North Carolina. They're the, it's Tim Anderson and the Original Strength Group, and they have caught our attention. Their principle is that you know when people are kids, you're climbing, you're crawling, you're like your body's moving in all kinds of different ways, and as you become an adult, you kind of are sitting in a car commuting or at a desk, or you know. So they're all about kind of restoring automatic kind of crossbody movements. They have people doing rolling, crawling, things like that, um, that helps to kind of restore your nor your natural core strength. And, um, but also, you know, just kind of helps those brain neurons cross <laughs> in ways that um, help you really with transitioning, sit to stand, climbing steps, walking, um, so anyway, some of the move the the tasks in that video that we created were just plain crawling. Can you do it in sync? Um, or um, we're just on all fours doing an opposite arm or leg movement. That's kind of a standard PT task. Yeah, and then a lot of the other tasks were just all right. Let's figure out tasks that people can do safely, <laughs> but yet be challenged. And so those are some of the tasks that I came up with. It's hard to make a video because everybody has different abilities, and so the, there's lots of disclaimers in the video where you kind of those are ideas, and you can kind of figure out when you're practicing anything, you kind of are constantly assessing what are you able to do successfully? And you're asking yourself, are you challenging yourself, but within a reasonable level of challenge where the task is safe? And some days will be better than others. Some days you'll be able to do more and you'll be feeling really good about that. And then maybe when you've done more, then the next day you're tired and your body's just not functioning as well as it was the day before, which can be a source of frustration. But um, that's part of motor learning and neural rehab is not every day is a good day. Um, but it's kind of constantly needing to assess what you're able to do and then modify whatever task you're trying to do to make it realistic challenging we'll put the uh the video in the show notes as as well as the life glider so people have links for that
Thank you so much for listening to this episode. We appreciate your support and would love to hear from you. Ask us questions and share your thoughts by email at nogginsandneurons at gmail.com. That's noggins, the word and, spelled out, neurons at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, please share this podcast with others you think will benefit. Also be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. We'll catch you next time on Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified.